around you. In the 7th Cavalry, we got a captain from the Ukraine. Another from Puerto Rico. We've got Japanese, Chinese, Blacks, Hispanics, Cherokee Indians, Jews and Gentiles, all Americans. Now here in the States, some men in this unit may experience discrimination because of race or creed. But for you and me now, all that is gone. We're moving into the valley of the shadow of death. Where you will watch the back of the man next to you, as he will watch yours. And you won't care what color he is, or by what name he calls God. They say we're leaving home. We're going to what home was always supposed to be. Let us understand the situation. We are going into battle against a tough and determined enemy. I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this, I swear, before you and before Almighty God, that when we go into battle, I will be the first to set foot on the field and I will be the last to step off and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So help me God. Like, I'm for real holding tears back. Like, legitimately holding tears back, right? I mean, you may be sitting here going, are, are you serious? That's like a movie speech, and you want to cry? And I'm like, yes, I want to cry. I'm so deeply moved. Well, uh, my wife and I were on vacation the last few weeks with uh, my eight children. Uh, a part of our vacation, we were staying uh, at a beach house in North Carolina um, and just kind of relaxing there. And as is typical uh, of beach homes that you would go to, they usually have an old bookshelf somewhere with books from 1991, right? Uh, that are like, and, and then they, they usually have a section where they have the VHS tapes. Do you remember this, right? right? If you don't know what that is, Google it. Okay, it's a super cool one-pager to do for school. Um, and so uh, they have these little cassette tapes. VHS tapes, you put them in a, uh, in a VCR, and then you rewind it, and you forward it. It plays kind of like a digital movie, but not as pretty, okay? So, um, and so my son, uh, one morning was combing through the VHS tapes, and he found this movie, We Were Soldiers, right? The movie that you just saw the clip from. And he came up to me, my 14-year-old son, and he said, Dad, can we watch this? Now, now here's the deal. It's R-rated, okay, for war violence and some language, okay? Uh, and generally, we're very careful what goes into the hearts and minds of our kids because it is our job, my wife and I's job, 
to protect and guard the hearts and minds of our kids until they're old enough to guard them themselves and to teach them how to do that while they're young so that they'll do it well. And so very careful what goes in and what comes out. But when my son brought me that movie, it's one of my favorite movies in the war genre and just in terms of inspiring life, he handed it to me. I knew in my soul it was time. I knew, I was like, it's time. It's time for us to sit and watch a war movie together. It's violent. It's crazy. People die, but it's time to come awake, right? And so, so I, I took the movie and I said to my son, one morning we'll wake up early before everybody else. We'll go into a little room where there's a VHS player and, and we will watch the movie. And, and so we did. One morning on vacation, we sat and watched the movie. And when we got to this speech, when the speech is playing and I'm, I'm watching him and inside all I want to do is jump up and down on the bed and go, yes, yes, yes. Are you hearing this? I didn't do that because it would have embarrassed him to death and he would have walked out of the room and missed the rest of the movie. But I felt it inside. Because that speech, you, uh, you, could give it, you could give it to anyone that understands the reality of the gospel. We come from different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different spiritual journeys. We come from different spaces. We're different shapes and sizes and colors. And all of that makes us different and we tend to bicker and fight. But that's behind us now. Because we are entering the valley of the shadow of death. We are going to battle, he said. And, and let's, let's, let's get the situation right. We are going in against a tough and determined enemy. And I can't promise you how it's going to turn out. I can't promise you it's going to be easy. I can't promise you it's going to go well. But I can promise you that we're, we're going to go fight this war for the freedom of those we love and for our freedom. And that is what we are called to and tasked to. Man, you could give that speech right here. You know why? Because here at Mosaic Church, we have in our exploration of the gospel discovered that what the gospel tells us through the beautiful story of God is that we are not only recipients of the redemptive story of God, that he not only rescued our souls and redeemed our future so we can live our lives out on this planet and then finally go to the nice place rather than the bad place, right? That's sort of what I think oftentimes we've lived in. You live your life, you have the, the get out of jail free card called the gospel, and you wait till you have to present it so you can get into heaven. That's not what the story of God describes. It in fact expands it beyond our wildest imagination and says no, you are not only recipients of the gospel that does redeem your future and does rescue your soul, but you are participants in the gospel having your created purpose restored to you so that you can now participate along with your creator in what you were made to do, which is to display the beauty and wonder of God to the world. The difference is that in the Garden of Eden, you are displaying his beauty to a very receptive audience, right? And now you are light in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't like the light, nor did you when you were darkness. And so it bites back. And so what we discovered here, what we have discovered, is that together as we enter into the world we live in, we are invited as participants in the war against darkness and death. We are carriers of the light, carriers of life and freedom, carriers of the redemptive story of God, the gospel, into the darkness. We are invaders 
of the darkness with the light of God as ambassadors of Christ. And it's awesome. It's a beautiful speech, isn't it? You're like, yes, hoorah, let's go. Just like that speech. You know what happens in the rest of the movie? People die. People die, the entire movie. That's why it's R-rated. Because they die badly and violently and crazy because war is ugly and hard. When people come back from war, they have PTSD. They have all sorts of nightmares. It's crazy and hard. You know why? Because war is ugly and hard. That's why we say the men and women on our front lines, they pay a high price for our freedom because war is hard and ugly. And people die. And it's not, not pretty to watch. That movie, great movie, hard to watch. This, this conclusion on my vacation, for some reason, had just a tangibility to it. This, this reality that the lives that we live, if we are going to be invaders of the darkness and carry the light, come with a high price and a high weight, the weight of war. Because just like in that movie, once in the war zone, it was a constant, unrelenting reality of the enemy over them. This was tangible. Now you might think, because if you've been around a while and you know I come back from vacation, I've got a long litany of insanity that occurred on vacation I can bring to the table, right? Which of the death stories do you want, right? So you might, you might anticipate, oh, several crazy things happened on Renault's vacation that made tangible the weight of the war that we're in as we invade hard places and we rescue hard things, right? But oddly enough, This year, it wasn't in the tangible, uh, plain and obvious antics that I noticed that. Don't get me wrong, there was no lack of them, right? I mean, you guys, if you've been around, you know, three years ago, I dragged my uh, youngest son across a beach at arm's length because he was bleeding from the mouth because he got hit by a surfboard, and I didn't want to get his blood on my nice pants, okay? So, so I dragged him like this. You can podcast it. Uh, it, it wrecked my soul, okay? And, and two years ago, uh, certainly we were, we were caught in a rip current, and I almost died along with one of my other sons, and we told that beautiful story. And then last year, there were sharks in the water, lots and lots of sharks, and they were eating people, and so we were like, should we go in or not? I don't know, and we wrestled with that, right? So antics, and, and this year was no different. All those antics were still around. Uh, we, we, we went cliff d- uh, jumping this year, and so we were on a 30-foot cliff jumping into the water down below, and uh, there was levels of cliffs like a 10-foot and then a 20 and a 30, and the 30's super high, okay? I was so scared. I'm not kidding. I hate heights, but I have to jump because I got full boys. And so uh, I was standing on the edge and like, you know, you can't stop and stand because if you stop and stand, you don't do it. So you have to just kind of stand this far back and go, by faith I will. By and so I did it. My, my nine-year-old, the one I dragged across the beach three years ago, right? Oh, he's jumping off that thing like it's a joke. Like he's, and I'm, every time he jumps, I'm nervous because he's falling three times the distance I am. He's like a third of my height. And so I'm like, oh, that's like a 90-foot jump, right? And so I'm like, he's going to die, he's going to die, he doesn't. So one time I'm standing on the top. This is no joke. I can't make this stuff up. Now I'm standing on the top, and I'm doing the little GoPro, and I see my nine-year-old in line, and he gets to the edge, and it was subtle. It was subtle, but it's a dad thing. You pick it up. His body posture changed from the normal jump to something other. He kind of leaned differently, and I'm like, Cole, what are you doing? And he looks at me without a second thought. He goes, I'm going to try to dive. <laughs> He's nine. 
I'm going to try to dive, he says. You know why? Because some idiot 19-year-old who's a pro diver thought it'd be great to stand and dive off a 30-foot cliff. He did great. He's a pro diver. But my 9-year-old calculates this way. If there's a human that can do it, I can too. That's why he bleeds all the time. So he's standing on the edge. He's about to dive. I'm like, that would have been a story. Seven concussions from my nine-year-old diving into water at 30 feet. So I said, no, you're not. And he's like, yes, I am. I'm like, you can try it, but I'm coming after you. He didn't dive. By God's grace, he jumped. He was mad. But it could have happened. I stood on the beach. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about all these things. I, I stood on the beach this year. And uh, while on the beach, I had, you know, that little buoy that the, the uh, lifeguards have that you strap around yourself and you hold it. Two weeks on the beach, there I am. <laughs> All the other families are chilling, reading books. Kids are playing. I'm thinking, you're idiots. There's riptides here. And when your kid gets caught in the riptide, you're going to be calling me because I, I got the buoy. Yeah. Wasn't the prettiest sight on the beach, but you know what? I've been in a riptide, right? So that, that was going on. Last year, there were sharks in the water, right? This year, there were no articles. Apparently, no sharks. I've never seen a shark live in the water. This year, while my kids were playing in the waves, no joke, my friend was with me, Mike, he can attest to this, a fin this big came out of the water in the surf. And I'm like, dolph! No, not dolphin, that, no, that's, that's a shark! It's a giant 90-foot shark! Yeah, maybe it wasn't 90 feet, but it was at least eight. And that means that it, it could do damage, right? And I'm like, here we are, no articles, nobody warning, and my kids are playing, and this giant shark swims in the surf. I'm like, wow, sharks are still in the water. So don't get me wrong, there's plenty of things going on as usual that God could use to say, here's another thing. But this year, it wasn't in all of those things that God began to speak to me. It was in something that was far more invisible, an undercurrent of sorts. It was ever-present despite the fact that we were having a great time on vacation. See, when we went on vacation this year, uh, we tend to take the time to read. Okay, just to be honest, I don't read, so my wife reads and then she tells me what the book says and then I say I've read the book. So we do, we do that. And so she was reading, and one of the things that we've been reading a fair amount about lately is as our family uh, continues to form and we continue to do the rebuilding process uh, in the beauty that is us, uh, one of the things we realize is that there's a lot of arenas that still need work and healing because when you come from traumatic places and, play, uh, uh, and trauma is present and then the trauma affects the others and then they have trauma, there's usually a lot of work to be done. And so we were reading just some books about what we still have ahead of us. And I'll tell you, it's a, an overwhelming thing when you step into hard places. Healing doesn't happen overnight. In fact, the books we were reading, they're decades of work ahead. Not days, not weeks, not months, not years, decades of work ahead. So in the midst of laughing and having fun and our family really doing well and, and having friends there and other family, extended family there, there was also this constant undercurrent of, man, en enjoy because there's a lot of work ahead. Well, when you're in the war zone invading the darkness, there is no guarantee from Scripture that God's going to make it pretty and happy. We're on planet Earth. That time comes later. Right now, we are here on mission. And so that was ever-present. Then we had some friends visiting with us the first week, uh, people we do life here with, and the, the two families that came with us this year, we had 17 kids and five adults, you can do the math, it was pretty crazy, and super fun. 
and both those families, uh, I, we know them very, very well, and so we know their life. We do life with them. And the last few years, they have both faced extraordinarily heavy circumstances, some that came their way that they did not ask for, and some that are theirs because they've chosen to step into mission in some way. And so a combination. And so during the week that we were together, there was lots of laughing and lots of fun and lots of great relaxing and, and decompressing time, but the conversations on the couch later at night or on the walk were still conversations about, wow, like how's God still going to work through that? And that still feels heavy. And well, how do we do this? And, and so the reality of the life we've been invited into as carriers of light invading the darkness was ever present in the undercurrent of this vacation. And then while I was on vacation, the day we left, actually, the day before we left, one of my best friends in the world, my, one of my blood brothers, uh, Scott South, uh, his daughter, a young seven-year-old daughter, Scott and Julie, uh, she had to go in for a major surgery. Uh, she, they brought her into their home a few years ago. She's adorable and runs around like crazy. And one of the, one of the girls, the South girls now, and, and she had to have a massive surgery because she has physical special needs. And so there've been multiple surgeries. And because of that, there's scarring and other things. And so every surgery that she has in addition gets more and more complex and complicated. So we head off to vacation and the surgery hits and I'm in touch with Scott and I'm back and forth and it's not, it, it, it's not going well. The recovery's not going well. There's complications to things. So we're praying and we're asking God, would you touch her, would you heal her, would you do this and that? And, and it's, it's just progressively, it's like the, the war is unrelenting. As of standing on this stage today, Julie South has been in the hospital next to Bella's bed for 32 straight days now. She left the hospital once for four hours to have lunch with her husband. 32 straight days. The last three days, Bella, there's something going on inside of her that they can't figure out. She has screamed in pain for three straight days. They've done epidurals. They've dumped massive amounts of pain meds in her. Nothing's working. Nobody knows what's going on. They're trying. Doctors from all over the country are trying to figure this out. And we, what are we doing? We're praying and asking God, and it seems like the war is unrelenting. So I'm, I'm away, and my friend Scott and his wife Julie and their daughters and Bella are dying and I'm somewhere else. And the weight of the stories we've taken on was so tangible in the midst of a great vacation. And so it, it sparked a question for me. That's what usually happens on my vacations. I have time to have questions and so a question arose. And this was the question that arose for me how do we, knowing what we know about the gospel and participating in being redemptive in hard places and taking on hard things, how do we sustain an attitude of fighting when the enemy, sin, death, and the tangible enemy, Satan himself, are unrelentingly warring against us and it feels like we are losing? How do we sustain a fight in us and not fall to cynical weariness or frankly just lose heart and lose resolve and lay down. How do we do that? So I went to God early on in the vacation. I said, all right, God, that's the question. Here it is. Now I know you. That's gonna be awesome. There's gonna be a verse, a passage, something I'm gonna find. And I searched and I looked and I walked and I thought and I asked and I said, God, show me. What is it that makes this work? And he told me nothing. He didn't say it was nothing. He just told me nothing. I didn't hear a word. I, I read. I looked. I found verses. Don't get me wrong. There's neat verses. 
But every time I'd come to them, a standard verse would use, it would feel trite to me. Now, verses are not trite. They are truth and they're beautiful. But at times they can feel trite when we use them in a trite manner. So I'd come across them and I'm like, no, no, that doesn't answer the question for me. I know that verse well. It's great, but it doesn't answer the question, how do we do this? While I was wrestling with all of this and God was essentially silent, a sequence of events took place on my vacation. The first event that took place, you already are privy to. My son found a VHS tape. We were soldiers. Pulled it off and asked to watch it and I knew in my soul it was time. And so we sat and watched that movie together. And it inspired me again. It reminded me of what it is like to be part of a band of brothers at war. And it was a good reminder of what I already knew about the gospel, that while we are on this planet, we are ambassadors of light, of Christ, and we carry the light into the darkness and invade the darkness, and it's going to be like war. Those words actually in the Bible. It's a war. So I watched that war movie, and I'm like, okay, that should be an expectation I kind of set for what I'm going into. Not all ugly, but sometimes ugly. And after watching the movie, uh, when we were done with our two weeks in North Carolina, uh, we went up to Branson, Missouri. In Branson, Missouri is Kennecook Camps, and at Kennecook Camps, they do a family camp there, and I had the privilege of taking my family to family camp because I had the honor of being the speaker for the parents there. And so I, had, I have a lot of kids, I can't take them to camp, but this time, uh, they had a very expensive speaker. And so... Because they had to cover my kids. You understand, like, it's a big price tag, okay? And so uh, it was great. And so I get there, and my kids are having a blast, and I'm talking to the parents every morning, and, and I ask God, God, what is it you want me to bring to the table? And really determined in my journey with God that ultimately uh, I need to talk about guarding the heart because of the life we live here. And we've discovered here at Mosaic that you guard the heart not through accountability, though that's helpful. You guard it through intimacy. When we are intimate with God, we we are in love with God. We are intimate with either our spouse, if we have one, or our close-knit biblical community. And, and then we're intimate with our larger biblical community. We're in love with those different relationships. Then we are guarded from the enemy's ability to drag us into places we ought not to be. And so I unpacked that throughout the week. And the third, the third unpack was the intimacy of biblical community. And I talked about us. I talked about us. This little place and what it's like to, to be in a place where we actually stir each other up toward love and good deeds and where we, we actually bleed together and laugh together and do life together and, 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 and struggle together where things are actually happening. We don't just do church. And when I was done talking about what that should look like afterwards, a number of the people that I was speaking to would come up and they would say, man, I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be part of a biblical community like that. We're not perfect, but it's a good place right? And so we talked about that, and I, and I felt a bit sad that they don't, and, and yet inspired that there's more work to be done. And so God shaped that, and then <laughs> Joe White. So Joe White is Brady White's dad. Brady is one of our teaching pastors here in the campus pastor for Disney, and Joe is his dad, and Joe runs Kennecook Camps, okay? Joe is the weirdest, coolest guy on the planet, okay? Joe does super weird stuff. And so one night, the parents are there, and Joe comes down, no joke, in a full native Indian outfit, the little small skirty thing in the deal, and he's got hula hoops, and there's drums playing, he's like, boom, 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 boom. And we're all just sitting there like, this is super weird, and he's awesome. And he walks down to the stage, and he does an entire Indian dance with hula hoops. 
Brady's dad. You're going to want to see this, right? You're like, that's incredible, weird, strange, awesome, cool. And he does this whole dance, and when it's over, he turns to us and he says, that was a real native Indian dance for family. And the, the way the, Indi- the native Indians work is that family is the, is the tribe you live in, not just your immediate blood family. It's the tribe. And so he said, look, this is, the, this is a dance they do regularly to remind themselves that they've they got to do life like this. Otherwise, they don't do life at all. They die. And so he talked about family, and he, he played a clip from the movie um, uh, Wizard of Oz, the old one with little Dorothy, and he played the clip where she said, there's no place like home. There's no place like home, and tapped her heels. And he said this, no place like home. And I was just moved by that. It's like, yeah, that's right. There's no place like home. Right after that camp, we got in the car on Friday and Saturday. Last weekend, we were driving back to come to Orlando. Saturday, I was giddy inside to get back here. My Sprinter, I drive a big Sprinter van. It has a governor on it, so when you drive, you can only go 82, okay? I know some of you are like, whoever goes 82, I'd go 86 if I could. Um, And so I'm in the Sprinter. My foot is flat on the floor. Like, I'm like, come on. And it's like 82. And I'm like, I'm going to pass you. No, I'm not. Uh, And so it's super frustrating. Now, I'm glad it only goes 82 because it's a big vehicle and it ought not to go more than 82. But... Uh, the entire time there was this almost frustration, like it, it's gotta, I gotta get home faster. Saturday night I got home and I was almost giddy ab- about Sunday morning, uh, last weekend. I knew Brady was preaching, he's phenomenal and I couldn't wait to see what God was gonna say through him and what I was gonna be able to just sit and, and soak in. And so Sunday morning came and we got the kids ready in 11.17 and we rolled in here and, and I came in and we sat right there in the middle. I sat with my wife and Brady, the worship happened and Brady preached and when I walked into the lobby, I walked into the lobby here. I mean, oh my gosh, it was like, it's like a feeling I haven't had in a long time. I just was like, I am home. I am home. See, my longing to get home wasn't so much about sleeping in my own bed. I had my wife with me. I don't care what bed I sleep in as long as she's with me. We're totally good. And so it wasn't about getting to a house. It was about getting here, getting home. I walked in the lobby and I looked around and I'm like, this is what I've been longing for. Three weeks out, I can't, I can't, I can't do that feels too long, too crazy. And a scene, a scene hit me from that same movie, We Were Soldiers. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And in the scene, God answered a question that I had been wrestling with. See, the story, We Were Soldiers, is a true story. It was the first great battle in Vietnam. And uh, they sent this colonel in with this unit in helicopters. It was the first time they tried this. And they were supposed to drop them on this hill and then it was supposed to be a small enemy encounter and then they were gonna extract them. Well, they didn't realize this, but in the, in the real world, when they landed, they landed into the bee's nest. It was a giant movement of the enemy and it became one of the great battles where they knew they were gonna lose. But because this colonel was who he was, they ended up navigating this battle, but it was a terrible, terrible battle. And at a certain point during the battle, when they realized they were overrun by the enemy, the generals back at headquarters realized that if a colonel died in a first battle in Vietnam, the political implications and media implications would be massive. So they wanted to pull the colonel out from the battle to debrief with him and then not send him back so that when all the guys died, he wasn't one of them. That was legitimately their plan because they knew, they knew they weren't going to win this battle. 
And so multiple times throughout the movie, they radio in and they say, please tell the colonel we need to debrief in Saigon. We need him on a chopper in the morning, get him out. And the last time they do that on the radio is three quarters way into the movie. There are three guys sitting and it's nighttime, so the enemies died down and they're about to go in and go and find their friends who have been killed and drag their bodies back because he said, I will leave no man behind. So they're about to do that and a radio call comes in about him, the colonel, getting out the next morning again to be debriefed. And this is what unfolds. Take a look at this. Colonel, Brigade Headquarters wants you lifted out on the first chopper at dawn. Now what idiot would keep ordering that in the middle of a battle? General Westmoreland wants to brief it. Give me I am in a fight, and I object to this order to return to Saigon. Now I will not leave my men. Is that clear? It's short, but it's sweet, isn't it? You see the, you see the, the guy's reaction who's on the radio? When he first goes, they, they want you lifted up first thing in the morning, and the colonel goes, now what idiot would order it? Order and he puts his hand over the radio. He's like, it's General Westmoreland, man. And do you see what the colonel did? He grabbed that thing and he goes, all right, here's the deal. I'm in a fight, and I'm not coming back. And my men are here, and I'm not leaving them. Thank you. And did you see the smile on the guy's face? Because remember the speech? I'll be the first boot on the ground, I'll be the last boot off the ground. When that happens, man, that's real. And that's a true story, it happened that way. I stood in that lobby and God spoke and said, Renaud, you wanna know? You wanna know how you do this? How you sustain in the war if you're gonna be a, a, a real church that's gonna take on the darkness and invade it with light in your workplaces, in your relationships, in your resources, in, in your neighborhoods, uh, globally and locally. You're gonna invade that when circumstances come that this American cultural ideology says, it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, you're unhappy, bail, bail, bail. We go, no way, no way, because I'm not fighting to be happy, I'm fighting to make the gospel beautiful. And when we see hard things and we see people dying around the world and we see orphan crisis and human trafficking crisis and homeless crisis and, and, and marriage crisis and, and workplace crisis and, and debt crisis and, and, and all these things, we invade those spaces. When we see racism and, 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 and ugliness, we invade those spaces. We dare to walk in them. We don't, we're not afraid. Well, if we're going to do that, and we are going to live through that, God spoke and he said, then this is how you do it. You deal with these people, and you do it together. You know that God spoke this multiple times throughout scripture, but the verse that popped into my head, it dropped on me like a ton of bricks. It was like God was holding it back from me and going, right, ready now, here, it was out of Philippians. Paul is writing later in his life, we'll get to it like in 2047 or something. Um, <laughs> Paul's writing later in his life, to the church in Philippi. And the church in Philippi had faced some tough, tough, tough stuff. They were really in the war zone from a missional perspective and they'd been persecuted greatly and Paul's writing to them from prison. So Paul's in prison and he's gonna die uh, in, in prison. So it, it doesn't look like the, the, the gospel's winning. It, it, it feels like it's losing in some ways and Paul writes them and in his introduction, it's, it's in this letter that he says this, uh, for I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. This is where Paul begins to say, I, I know the war is hard, I know it's crazy, I know we're on the hill and I know the enemy has surrounded us and I know it feels like we're losing, but listen to me. 
We all get to go home. We all get to go home. We all win in the end because he will make all things new and he will complete what he began in each of us. So even when the war feels overwhelming, he says this to the Philippians and then he writes these words to them. Listen to this and this is where God spoke and said, here it is, Renaud, you want the answer? Here it is, here it is. How do we sustain the fight when the war is unrelenting and it feels like the enemy's winning? When your seven-year-old daughter is screaming in the hospital room and nobody knows what to do and you've begged God enough, how do you do it? How do you do it? Chapter two, verse one, Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, we already have it available to us. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All that means is, though he had the right to exert his divinity, he did not. He voluntarily set it aside to be with us. Look at this, look at this. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for what did he die on the cross? For the joy set before him, the author of Hebrews will say in Hebrews 12, he endured the shame of the cross because he was redeeming us. That's what he did. And he says, if you want to live the life he's invited you to live, if I want to live the life he's invited me to live, then we have got to be single-minded. We have got to be of one accord. We have to have the same love and the same vision. And we have to fix our eyes on the kernel that leads us. See, here's what God told me. If you're gonna do this right now, sustain this when children are screaming in hospitals and when it seems like the mission you've done isn't advancing as much or the adoption isn't going well or things are derailing in the widow care or you've engaged in some controversial space in your culture and now you're getting crucified for it. If you're gonna keep doing that and you're gonna keep sustaining, then you do it together and you keep your eyes fixed on the colonel because here's what the colonel did. He was the first boot on the ground in the redemptive process. Jesus showed up here long before he asked any of us to do squat. And he will be the last boot on the ground when this planet is made new. We have a kernel that will never leave us nor forsake us, never. And we hang with him with each other. When the war gets overwhelming and unrelenting, all you've got is the guy next to you. That's who you fight for. When you're exhausted and spent and you don't know why you keep trying, you fight for the guy next to you and the colonel who leads you. That's it. We live to bring glory to God and we live for each other. Did you know in the scriptures there are 59 separate commands of how to live with one another? Encourage 
one another. Empower one another. Exhort one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Love one another. I can go on and on 59 times. Here's how you do life with one another. Why? Because if we are going to be invaders of the darkness and carriers of the light and sustain in the ugliness of war, then we better do it together. And we better keep our eyes on the colonel whose boots are on the ground before us and we'll never leave until we're done. I get to work alongside that colonel as do you. And in my space, I get to work as a under shepherd leading this unit. And I will tell you, as long as I have breath leading this unit, I will be the first boot on the ground with my master invading darkness and I will be the last one out. Because he was long before me there and he will be long before me, long after me there still. And we will do it together. We will do it together. My prayer, my hope for you is that this place or whatever church you end up calling home, your biblical community would become a place that when you show up after three weeks of vacation, you're home. You're home. And you know why you're home? Not because the program is awesome. I think our program's pretty cool, but lots of churches do it better than us, and some don't, so you can kind of compare. Our worship is great, but there are churches that do it like us, better than us, and worse than us. Our preaching is decent, but there's churches that do it better than us, worse than us, and like us. Our children's programs are great, but there are churches that do it better and worse. When I walked in this door, it wasn't all those things that I was longing for. You know what it was? This is the only church with the South family in it. This is the only church with the Wimberleys in it. This is the only church with the Petunias in it. This is the only church with Carrie Waters in it. This is the only church where Amanda bugs me after I go over time. There's no other church that has an Amanda like that in it. This is the only church that has Lisa sitting in the back sometimes and Jeff Amato filming in the corner and Carrie, Ann, and Jessica checking people in with their team. This is the only church that has the bucks and this is the only church that has the wells and this is the only church. I can go on, guys. I, I actually wrote it out. I did. I wrote names of real people that I really know and do life with. I see many of your faces on that list. The list was so long that I, I, I literally thought if I went through the list, I would literally spend the message time just going, this, is, this church has these people and these people and this family and that person and these people and that person. There's no other church that has you and there's no other church that has me. We have each other. That's all we got. Our master and this unit. And that's how we do it. I cannot promise you that if you dare to invade dark and hard places or you dare to sustain when circumstances come that make it hard and difficult and the culture tells you to bail and you don't, I can't promise you it's going to go well. I can't promise you you come back alive. But I can promise you that when it's all over and this war is done on this stinking planet, that if we have lived beside our general, our colonel, and we've had boots on the ground together and we have sustained one another as we fix our eyes on him, I can tell you that all things will be made new. And I can tell you that we will be complete. And I can tell you that we win. But it's going to be a rough ride 
until we get there. But rough rides are what we're made for and trained for on this planet. Let's go do it together. There's no place like home. Let's pray. God, thank you for this place, this little unit among so many units on this planet living redemptively, and we get to be this one with these people, with each other. Help us in the weight of war on this planet to find ourselves in the one another's, encouraging and empowering and bearing and forgiving and, and, and exhorting and, and, and doing life with one another and help us to be preaching the gospel to each other so that we are fixing our eyes on you, our colonel. Boots on the ground before us, boots off the ground after us. Redemptively working ahead of us, working behind us, working around us and doing what you've promised to do which is to complete it all, to finish it all. Thank you that we get to participate with you in this war. That we get to be the heroes in the story with you when you could have easily not allowed us in. Help us when the war gets ugly and hard and long. The circumstances are unpredictable and unknown. The realities of missional living becomes heavy and complicated. Help us to press into you and press into each other. That this place, this unit would be who we fight with and you are who we fight for. God, thanks for home. Thanks that this is my home and that there's no place I'd rather be than here. Thanks for these people. May everyone here, God, find, whether in this place or in another church, home. Not programs, not preaching, not worship. People, each others, so that we can do life at war sustainably with you and for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.